I want to uh, share with you a, a, a story I came across recently of a lady called Yu Yozen. Uh, she lives and works in China, and her and her husband have become uh, one of the first people in their village uh, to build their own house. Um, they have a property empire as well, worth 10 million yen, which is about 1 million pounds. Now, this might sound not very extraordinary, uh, given that we have lots of people over here, property magnates, people who run their own rental firms. But uh, Yu is 53 years old, she's a mother of two, and she still works as a street sweeper, earning £142 a month. She has worked as a farmer, a cook, and a lorry driver as well. And currently she's responsible for cleaning a three-kilometre stretch of road, which involves a 3am to 9am shift with one day off a week. Her comment on all this busyness and her work was this, I do not want to sit around idly and eat up my fortune. <laughs> um, the head of Yu's sweeping team reports that she is never late for work and has only ever asked for three days off in the last 14 years to attend a family funeral. Well, she is an extraordinary example of uh, that sort of ambitious, shrewd, industrious worker. And uh, she's the employee that any boss uh, would love to have on the team. Uh, industry, hard work, ambition has always been celebrated and valued in human culture, whether uh, capitalist West or Marxist East, uh, to ancient Egypt through to the Roman Empire. Here in Manchester, in this city, we have the honour of being the world's first industrial city. Uh, Sir Joseph Whitworth was the father of precision engineering. Eton Hodgkinson and Sir William Fairbairn introduced the production of cast iron beams, strong enough to span large uh, distances that were used in bridge building. That came out of Manchester. James Naismith invented the steam hammer, and the first purpose-built industrial estate was in Trafford Park in 1886. 95% of all the world's train wheels were manufactured in East Manchester, where the Etihad campus is now situated. The heritage of Manchester therefore celebrates a place of industry and hard work. The British worker puts in, on average, an 8.7 hour day. That means they enter the office at 8.30 and will be leaving at about 6.12. Precisely, And that's if you've taken a one-hour lunch break. But surely uh, isn't the lunch break virtually non-existent? Uh, the average lunch now lasts 27 minutes. A survey of 2,000 people, 80% often work through their lunch break. About the same percentage eat their uh, lunch at their desk. And over 75% don't take morning and afternoon breaks. The average German or Italian worker leaves one hour earlier than us here in Britain. So by 6pm, the Italian is enjoying a lovely pizza and a glass of red wine, and the uh, German a Frankfurter and a pint of Beck's, not that they're stereotypes. <laughs> the, the average British worker does the equivalent of eight weeks unpaid overtime each year. 75% of managers feel working late or at the weekends is the only way to deal with their workload. 
On Thursday evening, I was at something called the Northwest Insider Dealmakers Awards, which took place at Manchester Central. And I was chatting with a team manager for transaction services at an accountancy firm. And he had previously worked in London for PricewaterhouseCooper, PwC, where it was the norm to do 12-hour days and at least six hours over the weekend. That was the norm. That didn't uh, include when they had serious deals going down, which meant you know, pulling in hours through till two, three in the morning, perhaps. He said, interestingly, that four years of that was enough for him and moved up to Manchester to work with a smaller firm. More than eight out of ten British workers feel their health has been harmed by work demands. 60% of us feel our workloads are out of control. Research by the Royal Society of Psychiatrists states at any given time, one in five people feels unusually tired and one in ten have prolonged fatigue. No doubt a good number of you come to church today having had busy, full-on weeks crammed with stuff to do. There are still many things on your to-do list, no doubt. I imagine even now, just as I said that, you were going, oh, I hope he's only 20 minutes or even less so I can get out of here and carry on with the things to do. You feel tired, in need of some downtime, but even that sounds like hard work. So vegging out on the sofa is the popular leisure option for most people. And to top it off, you come to church and there's yet more work to be done. Why spend a bit of time giving you some of that historical and contemporary analysis? Well, because it's a snapshot of the air we breathe about work and rest in our culture. And it's against that backdrop that we hear the fourth commandment given by God to Israel... And we have to work out how to apply this word. This word, which is a word about grace, a word of freedom, a word of blessing to us as we live as God's people. And of all the Ten Commandments, the fourth is the one that trips Christians up. We find it the most difficult to apply. The spectrum ranges from strict observance right through to pragmatic, well, whatever suits you. What is the Sabbath? Why, why have the Sabbath? And how do we Sabbath? They're the three questions I want us to address this morning. And I realise that as I've been doing uh, my preparation, I just feel this is the sort of subject that needs at least uh, two weeks worth to look at. And I appreciate that some of the applications here you might feel are a bit light and I need to work those through. I'd be happy to chat through with you individually how to work that through. So let's have a look at uh, what is the Sabbath. And here we are um, in Exodus 20 on page 73 in the hardback Bibles. Uh, And let's just cast our eyes back over verses 8 to 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. It's very simple. The Sabbath was the day the Lord told his people to stop work. The Old Testament uh, commentator John Durham clarifies the word Sabbath just in the Hebrew means to rest, to cease. 
A.T. Robinson unpacks this further, saying, it's nothing to do with relaxation, but focuses on stopping for settlement. It's about completion. Like the primary school teacher calling the class to put their fingers on their lips, or hands on the head, or the activity stops. Or the examiner saying those fateful words to a hall of students, stop writing and put your pens down. If you're like me, (laughs) trying to scribble in a bit more. Or like the ref blowing the final whistle. Sabbath is stop. The Sabbath has rhythm. Uh, God set the world working to his groove, if I can put it like that. Six and one. Uh, I was in my office as I was preparing this. I think the people above me and around me probably thought I was mental because I was clapping loudly. I was trying to get that one, two, three, four, five, six, one. One, two, three, four, five, six, one. Can you hear the rhythm to it? It's deliberate. God set the world in motion to his rhythm. It has a groove. Work and rest. Six days of normal, everyday work, followed by one of stopping and repeat. Six of work, one of stop. Six of work, one of stop. And as we look further into the law God gave Moses, uh, as we read through Leviticus, we see that this Sabbath was applied not just to one day, but to um, a marker after seven years, uh, where the land was to rest. Nothing was sown, there was no agricultural work, let the land rest. And then the seven times seventh year, so the Jubilee year, the year after the 49th year, bang! That was a huge rest point. Slaves were released, debts were cancelled. It was a time of celebration, a time of redemption. The Sabbath, therefore, is God's gift to his people. It's an act of love and kindness. It is a day of rest and celebration. Did you notice in verse 10 how this command includes everyone, including the animals and the foreigners living with the Israelites? The day of rest, therefore, is universal. It's for everyone and every creature. It's inclusive, regardless of ethnicity or religious background. If you were staying with an Israelite friend Thursday to Sunday, you would have stopped as well on Saturday. It's generous. In Egypt, where Israel was slaves, there were no days off. The Pharaoh was a relentless master. It was an endless and punishing calendar of work day after 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 work day. day. You're getting the picture, aren't you? Under Yahweh, the people enjoyed rest. It was a direct challenge to the way a rebellious world works. To take a day of rest rather than just work through continues to challenge our workaholic culture. We'll get on to that a little bit later. It shows that our uh, creator God, the worker God, is also the God of rest. So the Sabbath day, quite simply, is stop what you're doing. Rest. And I hope at that point it already sounds good. I hope at that point there's a resonance with you, as people, every human. It's something we should want. And it's something we should do, because it's God's idea. It's the gift of the creator to his creatures. So, if that's what the Sabbath is, rest, stop. Why have it? 
What's the, what's the reason for the Sabbath? Why did God give people a day to stop? And we need to answer that question, the one about why, in order to work out the, well, how do we do it? So let's spend some time on that. Why have the Sabbath? Uh, back in Exodus 20 on page 73. The first thing we see, first reason for Sabbath is imitation. Look at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested, from, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We do what God does. When we go back to Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and I'll just flick there uh, and read these verses out to you. Genesis 2, uh, verses 1 to 3. If you want to flick there, it's quite easy. It's on page 2. Um, we read there, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Here's the crowning glory of creation, the seventh day. The other six have been a drama of God creating new territories and filling them and bringing order to them. So in day one, you get light and darkness, uh, day and night. And then day four, corresponding with that day, stars, sun and moon are created in verse 18 to rule over the day and night, providing order, separating light and darkness, territory and substance. Form and rule. Day two, water separated, heavens formed. Day five corresponds, birds are created to fill the heavens, fish to fill the sea. Day three, earth is formed, the seas are formed, vegetation, trees. And then day six, corresponding living creatures, livestock, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. And finally, man and woman, created to subdue, that is to cultivate, to develop, to rule over everything. In verse 28. And finally... The seventh day is the capstone. God rested from his work. It is finished. Notice it's an open-ended day. The refrain, and there was evening and there was morning, is missing. The seventh day has not ended. Uh, Steve Timmis uh, puts it like this. It is the day of days. The climax of creation. It is eternal. It's the day that the whole of creation longs for. That doesn't mean on the seventh day God went for a nap in a dark room, had to have a lie down. He doesn't get exhausted. There's something deeper to that meaning of God resting than just having a kip. No, the seventh day is the celebration, the delight, the pleasure of life in God's world as he designed it. And since the fall, we long for the seventh day where work isn't fractured by our selfish sin, where tiredness isn't an issue. So again, in his book, um, which I highly recommend, A Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness, Tim Jester uh, puts it like this, rest is godly because rest is godlike. We rest because God does. The rest day shows who we belong to. It shows who image we bear. Unfortunately for my eldest son, Sam, he looks just like me. So on Friday, uh, when he was sat in assembly at Trinity High School, um, I received a message 
from one of the guys doing assembly through Facebook. I think he was on the sound desk, the message trust, the in-your-face drama company we're in. And he just Facebooked me, and, and it just read, there's a mini you in the front row. Um, you see, Sam, unfortunately, bears my image very visually, even when he's sitting listening to an assembly. And when we stop work and rest, we show something of God's character. We show each other who we belong to. So there's imitation. Secondly, the Sabbath is about freedom. Um, And we're going to have to flick on to Deuteronomy 5 uh, for this. That's on page 180 in the hardback Bibles. And in Deuteronomy 5, what we've got here is the record of Moses preaching uh, the law of God to the Israelites 40 years later after Sinai, uh, just as they're to enter the promised land. And we read there in verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And again we get the same uh, instruction there. Uh, Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Well, can you see the emphasis there? This inspired yet different emphasis in verse 15 for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is tied to the Israelites' own experience of redemption. That is, their own experience of rescue from slavery. And the word in verse 15 for labour, um, sorry, verse 13 for labour is the same as slave in verse 15. Labour and slavery going together there. But they've been redeemed from it. The Sabbath was a symbol of salvation from Pharaoh's tyranny. From that rule of curse and hardship being freed to God's loving rule of freedom and blessing. So the goal of creation, the seventh day, is the same as redemption. That God's people might enjoy and experience the goodness of his rule. So the fourth commandment reminded God's people and us how God works. How he delivers people from inhumane, oppressive, exploitive work and brings them under his loving rule. And again, just to highlight, the fourth commandment in its time, this law of rest, was unique amongst the world cultures in the ancient Near East, around 1500 to 1200 BC. It curbed hard-grinding work, profit-taking and economic productivity. People and animals couldn't just be seen as money-making machines. Their worth wasn't measured by their productivity. Does that sound familiar? Things haven't really changed, have they? Yet Israel would look like they're not maximising profits. They would look like they're the ones losing out financially if they stopped work on one day. But they were the land of free people. They were the land of the deeply rested people. And the freedom of the Sabbath was also an opportunity to celebrate that rescue. It was a time, as you read in Leviticus, a time of holy convocation. What a great way of putting it. A sacred assembly, a coming together of Israel to worship the Lord God. And again, I would say, importantly, 
in Exodus 31, finally here on the why, it's about a sign. The Sabbath is a sign between God and his people. We get this in Exodus 31, so a little bit further on from uh, chapter 20. If you page to 80, um, it's on page 86. And in verse 13 we read, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout the generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So, it's a sign. But to who? And over what? Well, it's helpful just to remember that um, circumcision was the sign given to Abraham. And before that, the rainbow was the sign given to Noah about God's promises to his people. And, and now, the Sabbath day inscribed in God's law was a marker of Israel's distinctiveness. They were bound to the Lord God. This was a way they showed that. It was a sign pointing back to the seventh day of creation. That day that hasn't come to an end. That perfect rest with God. It was a sign of the present, reminding them of their identity, of their freedom, of the joy of living under God's rule now. And it was a sign for the future. It pointed forward to the ultimate fulfilment, that unbreakable seventh day rest in the new heavens and new earth. They didn't know that. They were looking forward to it as if looking into a bit of a fog. But they could trust God because of the sign he had given the way he has worked. So why Sabbath? Briefly, imitation. We do what God does. Freedom. It's about celebration, the rescue, redemption that God has given us. And then finally it's a sign. It's another marker of the distinctiveness of God's people. That they belong to him and they're looking forward to ultimate fulfilment. Now in the next couple of minutes I want to answer the question why then? And how do we uh, do Sabbath? If it's important, what does it look like for us? How do we relate this commandment to ourselves? And let me make it absolutely clear. Sorry, I keep picking up the wrong one. Um, there we go, that's the clicker rather than the recorder. How do we Sabbath? We do that through Jesus Christ. Making it absolutely clear, obeying the Ten Commandments doesn't make you right before God. It doesn't save you. Um, if I can just read to you Colossians chapter 2, and uh, in there, uh, a couple of verses from verse 13. Paul's making the argument here with the Colossian Christians about the centrality of Jesus' death, his resurrection. He writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically, you're dead, you're lost. By count, um, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The legal demands of the law were nailed to the cross. And again in Galatians, Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
So obeying the Ten Commandments does not make us right before God. Salvation always has been and remains the gift he gives. And we're not ancient Israel, to state the obvious. We're not living in Palestine. We're Jesus Christ's church. His rule extends over all the earth and isn't identified in any one geographical place. Our identity is found in Christ. The signs he's given us uh, to remind us of our salvation are baptism and the Lord's Supper. In Colossians 2, again, Paul persuades the Christians to see that Christ fulfills all the Old Testament religious ceremonies. So in verses 16 to 17, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, the, the Sabbath is a good way, it's a shadow. It, we're meant to follow the shadow and look back to the person causing the shadow. The substance is Jesus Christ. And the commandments find their reality in him. He is the righteous king. So, again, I would say um, that when we come to the Ten Commandments and look at how we apply them, and particularly this one on Sabbath, we have to frame it in terms of who Jesus Christ is. Steve Timmis puts it superbly when he says, We break the fourth commandment by rejecting the rest Jesus Christ offers us. It's not about shopping on a Sunday. It's not about catching up with emails before church. Jesus gives us deep rest from sin. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished in John 19. His work is done. Salvation complete. And it's his death, that sacrificial death in our place, that guarantees unending deep rest that our work could never achieve. Again, from Matthew 11, the the reading that Joe uh, brought to us earlier. We see there that Jesus is calling his followers. That's on page 984, uh, verses 28 to 30. Jesus calls his followers to take his yoke on on our shoulders. Now, I hope that's a startling image to you. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Come and put a massive great wooden bar across your shoulders... I'm on next to you, and you're going to wear this thing as well, okay? And you know what that means? It means like you're a, you're a cow, an ox, and you're going to drag the plough with me. That's what the yoke was for. It's a picture of work, of cattle driving the plough. But with Christ, our work isn't a killer. Why? Well, he's not a slave driver. He's not Pharaoh. He doesn't see us as units of productivity, but as sons and daughters he died to save. Yes, to carry Jesus' yoke is a labour. It will be tough. I think Christians, particularly here in England, need to man up a bit, or woman up a bit, toughen up. You know, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 um, that he was afflicted, he was perplexed, he was persecuted, he was struck down, he was going through a hard time. He still loved Jesus. He said in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians 8, very honestly, he'd run out of strength. That he was burdened beyond what he could imagine. He even despaired of life. He's a committed Christian following Christ, carrying the yoke, but life is hard, it's tough, it's hard work. And yet Paul goes on to say, but that that was there to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
With Jesus' yoke, these slight and momentary afflictions are put into perspective of an eternal weight of glory, that deep rest that God gives. So work with Jesus as our master is not a hard grind. It isn't draining. Because with him, we don't look to our work to give us only what he brings. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't look to our work for approval, for security, for status, for prosperity, for a better house, a better start for our children, better leisure options. All of those things, what the Bible would call idols, functional gods, functional masters, and many more, are overwhelmed and swallowed up by the riches of knowing God as our Father, the Son as our Saviour. The Holy Spirit as our counsellor, our advocate, the one who walks with us. You see, Jesus heals the sting of what Mike called a few weeks ago the near idol. Whether that could be overwork or tiredness. He deals with that. But he also smashes the far idol. That is, the, the one behind the presenting issue. So whether that's approval for some of you. Whether that's your self worth whether that's the fact that you're labouring under parents' expectations, whether that's you just want to be part of the gang at work, which is an approval issue again. You can see there. So I work really hard. I say, yeah, I was working till Sunday at three in the morning. I make sure I send emails at ridiculous times just so my teammates go, oh, wasn't, weren't they working so hard? That's the presenting issue, approval. But approval stands behind it. The need to be in control. Probably one of the biggest things that needs to be smashed in our lives. God is in charge. And because Jesus is victorious, because he has completed his work, we can find rest in our everyday work. The work he has called us to do. So religiously observing the Sabbath, whether it's that that's the Saturday for the Jews or the Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Christians used to meet, 1 Corinthians 16 doesn't add anything to our salvation. It doesn't win God's favour. But a day of rest does matter. It is a gift of God. And it's one that we can benefit from. It's one we shouldn't ignore. It's one we shouldn't be arrogant um, to do. Let me just pop up these things. We're not going to go through them point by point. But there we go. I thought the picture was excellent. It's rest day. Get in. So ceasing from our normal everyday work shows an active dependence on God. He's the one who sustains us. He's the one who provides for our families. He's the one in charge of our work deadlines. He's the one even responsible for keeping those work things going. And interestingly enough, he's the one who keeps the world going, not us. Alan Walton, a former partner at Deloitte in mergers and acquisitions, uh, was interviewed in the Faith in Business Journal. And uh, there he was talking about the issues he took a stand on as a Christian. He he replied to the question uh, about these issues. Um, He said, an area that comes to mind was challenging the long hours culture of the team I was part of. I was responsible for a team of 20 and made it clear that I did not expect them to kill themselves with weekend working. My own rule of thumb was no longer than a 12-hour working day, and people shouldn't have to work at weekends. There was one job with a private equity firm, which caused me to be removed from the team, partly because I said I wasn't prepared to work over a particular weekend, as it wasn't necessary. Did I take a stand as a Christian? It was a factor, but compassion and professionalism also came into it. You can see the universality there. 
how God's word makes sense regardless. Mark Mitchell, the MD of uh, Mitchell Group Car Dealership over in Ellesmere Port, took the bold decision not to open the dealership on a Sunday, which in the car trade is the day you flog cars. That's where you make your money. And interestingly, he stood his ground, so it meant he lost various dealer, um, dealer brokerages with uh, uh, car manufacturers. Uh, but he stood his ground, and Mazda, Lexus, and Skoda were so impressed with the results, and so were his 120 staff. Uh, and instead of the sign on the front door, you can go over and see it. He's a great guy. Uh, next to Sunday, instead of saying closed, it just says time with the family. And everyone loves it. Now, he's not making um, people go to church. He's not saying, on Sunday you shall do no work or go to the shops or anything like that. He's just saying it's a day to stop. And I'm going to put that in place for myself and my workers. So, yes, I think we should wisely apply one rest day in six to our working days. We've got to work out that rhythm. Six days of work, one of rest. Six and one. Six and one. And can you see how that will then avoid binge working and binge holidaying where you, I've got two weeks off and the couple of days beforehand is absolutely mental as I try and get everything done in order to go away and then I just crash and then I come back and it's like this but that's what we do our culture is such that the pendulum is swinging violently this way that way also we need to do this Because it commends the power of the gospel in our lives. We need to show our friends the blessing of rest in Christ. And that starts now. How do you consistently answer the question, how are you? I find more and more people sort of saying, regardless of whether they're in church or not, well, I'm doing well, but I'm pretty tired. Yeah, things are going well. Works works great, but it's tiring. That little additional phrase, yeah, but I'm tired. Now, it might be out of sympathy, it might be because we're trying to get approval. I don't know why we would say that. It might be just we we are physically tired. But then just shut up and go and have a rest. (laughs) But we won't commend the power of the gospel to change us if we're not just applying this wisdom from God. In our culture of overwork and binge leisure, to rest in Jesus is a missional difference. It shows us, shows other people who's in charge of life. So today, how's your rest going? How do you find stopping? That will apply wisdom. You need to work that out in your context. You need to come to the Lord and say, where am I not resting in you? Where is my heart hard? Where am I trying to be my own saviour? Who are the pharaohs that need killing in my life? Not literally. But what are the masters that need to be submitted to Christ? If you're tired, overworked, stressed out, if you're carrying a burden you can't manage, today Jesus says, come to me, I give you rest. I'm just going to finish in prayer, and my prayer is Psalm 95. I come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen.